You are listening to CFRO Community Radio Station. The upcoming show, Conscious Living Radio, is a program that explores frontiers of consciousness, spirituality, personal growth, emerging paradigms in psychology, health, science, and innovative philosophies that reflect commitment to the advancement of individual, social, and global transformation. Into your heart. Hi, welcome to Conscious Living Radio. I'm Tasha Sims. And I'm Mark Caron. And again, we're recording on Facebook Live. Um, the station's still on lockdown, so the audio then will be sent over, and the show airs Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. I hope you're all hanging in there in this really interesting, long period of time that we're in. I don't know, it feels like transition to me, but I'm hanging well, in there. My jury's out. And, and it's interesting too, Tasha, because as we mentioned, we were actually the live, the last show to air live out of the station. Right. And who would have thought that, you know, we're pushing nine months later. Yeah. And here we are adapting, finding new ways to, you know, reach our listeners and, you know, share, you know, our work with the world. And, you know, so I, I always look for the gifts in what's, you know, what's been around us and how we make it work. And, and this is one of the things that I've found has been kind of that blessing in, in midst yeah. of it all. So thank you for, for your adjustment to technology and things as well as we continue to do this. And um, I, I take a little pride in the bragging rights that we were the last live in, right. on the station. So well, I'm excited I, about our guest today too. So Me too. Great. And I know that you also, um, I'll introduce Sylvia, but she also is a lifelong learner. And that's part of what's happening for all of us. I think we're learning a whole lot of things um, about ourselves and the world and technology, as you say. So let me introduce her. Sylvia True is our guest. She was born in England to parents who were refugees from Germany, moving to the States when she was a child. She's the author of two books, um, uh, loves to travel to the Amazon doing research in the rainforest. That'll be a whole other show. What are you researching in that rainforest? Because <laughs> we like that. Her first book was called The Wednesday Group. And the novel that we're talking about today, Where Madness Lies, is the focus of our conversation. It's based on her family's experiences, how the past influences us. We're going to talk about the price of keeping family secrets, its impact on future generations. And we're going to try to weave together, you ready for this, the climate um, of Nazi Germany, Sylvia's family struggle to survive the Holocaust, mental health, spirituality, and the paranormal. So yes, that is a tall order. But this novel, which I highly recommend, it's fascinating. Um, it takes place in a time with the, with the Nazis rise, in part, the, the Nazis rise to power in Germany. And it feels chillingly important to me to see if we can unpack some of these subjects and unearth any learning that might be pertinent in today's world of unrest and reactivity and divisiveness. Um, Really, the question, can the echoes of Nazi history help us wake up and avoid something equally horrific uh, ever occurring again? And I think that question is super important with January 27th being International World Holocaust Awareness Day. So welcome to the show, Sylvia. Thank you so much for having me. So I love your book. I really, really Thank recommend you. it. And I'm not finished yet. I wish I could say I was, but I, I, it gripped me from the first page. Um, 
let's, if we can start with a bit of family history, how did growing up with parents from these different cultures, a mother who was a, a Swiss champion figure skater, a dad who was a theoretical nuclear physicist, and your grandfather was Anne Frank's family physician. Um, how did all that give you a unique perspective? Well, I think that, first of all, and I think this is true for many homes and households and families, but, you know, I felt it from quite a young age that the inside did not match the outside. Um, You know, what was going on inside my home when we moved to this country? I was about five. You know, there there was a lot of angst and um things that weren't talked about then crazy things that were yelled about and the outside was just this sort of normal midwestern suburb and i never felt i you know i think that it's a theme throughout the book like i I never felt like i fit in at all Mm -hmm. you know because in on the inside we had you know sort of european furniture my parents spoke german on the outside you know, I had to pretend like a regular kid. Now, this whole idea of pretending is is a really strong theme in the book as well. And I think many people feel that for all kinds of different reasons, you know, that their, what goes on in their family, they, they don't let that really show. And I sort of expose everything. Yeah, there's a, a quote, if I may, um, about your mother. You say, my mother believed in pretending pretend you are strong pretend you never feel nervous or anxious or god forbid depressed act pretend you are jewish in front of jews christian in front of christians there is no harm in playing both sides the inside doesn't have to match the outside so in effect and i agree with you many families are saying hide this hide that it's whether it's spoken or unspoken But the key to anxiety, so Carl Rogers, for those of you who don't know, was the founder of client-centered therapy, defines anxiety literally as when your inside doesn't match your outside. So your mom is giving you the formula to create more anxiety, I mean, unknowingly, because she's obviously right. trying right. to to save the family on some level. But in a way, that message that is perpetuated for all of us is, is a formula to create more anxiety which I just thought was, you know, I thought it was so fascinating. And I'm curious as to your relationship personally now with authenticity, because the beauty of being transparent when your inside matches your outside, it's not a lot of work. It may not be pretty, but it's not a lot of work. (laughs) I was just going to say, it's just so much easier, right? You just get to be who you are. And it's like, yeah, I get it. It might not be perfect. But, you know, perfection is the enemy of the good. That was something I did learn when I was growing up. And I do think that's true. This need that my mother's family and my mother had for perfection really did stem a lot from the Nazis and, you know, their need to be perfect. Otherwise, pretty terrible things happen to you. So that is another, like, sort of grounding point of the Well, the stakes are really high. People didn't have the luxury to be authentic because your life depended on it, right? right? Right. Yeah, on survival. So the message gets entrenched. And then I think what doesn't, although our society doesn't um, reflect it directly that anyone's going to kill you at this point, although that's questionable, um, the energy of it, the intensity and the importance of it is inherited. Right. Right? I think that's so true. I mean, 
And I think that's what got passed down, really. A lot of what got passed down in our family was fear, anxiety, and, and shame. And shame comes along with that, too. And shame was huge for me, you know, just feeling ashamed if I didn't fit in, if I wasn't normal, if I, you know, things didn't go well. I mean, it was just, there was so much shame. And I'm also a high school teacher, and I I love my students. And I try to, you know, give them the message. Although I, I teach chemistry, right. so, you know, I don't, you know, I don't teach wellness or anything. And yet I still am I'm sort of preaching to them about being open about, anxiety, mental health, that it's nothing to be ashamed of, you know, go and seek help. There are a million people out there willing to help you. And so I, I try to lower that shame in my classes as well. What do you, you know, think? Chemistry. The, right. What do you think the price is we pay for keeping these, whether it's secrets about the family or secrets about ourselves? What do you think the impact is? Well, it's tremendous, really. I mean, the amount I just that you said I love that uh, was it Carl Rogers? Carl Rogers, yeah, yeah, that was beautiful. Um, I mean, the amount of anxiety I think that people feel when they're when they're they're locked down inside and when they're hiding, and and of course that affects every relationship you have, right? Because if you're not authentic in your relationships. It, the relationship isn't going to be able to develop and grow and, and you lose out on the most, and I know this is going to sound a little cliche-ish, but you lose, you, you lose out on love. And really, I mean, what is more important than love? I mean, I'm not talking just about romantic love. I mean, any kind of love. And, and if you don't have that authentic relationship, you can't have that. That's right. Because even if they love you and say they love you and believe they love you, you are thinking, yes, but you don't know me because I'm hiding it, right? right? Because I'm hiding. I'm a fraud. That's not really who I am. And it's, it's hard. I mean, I think that age is a beautiful thing. I might not have said that 20 years ago, but Mm -hmm. with age comes, you know, the realization that, hey, I, I can do that. You know, I can just be myself. And so what did your family have to do in order to survive? I know they had to flee. They left uh, Germany. Right. Um, I think, yeah, physically flee. But I think even more importantly, in some respects, I think repress. I think a lot of people who have had traumatic experiences, the way they survive is they try to compartmentalize them and put aside that. My father, so both my parents were born in Frankfurt, actually. They were born in the same city. They didn't know each other. Um, My father's family was very intellectual. My mother's family was very wealthy and aristocratic. And I think that what my father, especially, I mean, I remember growing up, um, he would mention his childhood in Germany before he fled, and he was beaten and abused. And I knew this from my mother much later on, but he would tell you how perfect and wonderful you know, his childhood was. And, you know, my mother was similar. She didn't talk about her childhood, but what she did, she also, you know, would repress any anxiety, any slight hint of depression, because that was in her family particularly dangerous. And I think what saved her was skating and moving physically. Like, she took to the ice because a doctor said she had weak ankles. There's no such thing as weak ankles, but she got on the ice and 
that was it for her. I mean, she fell in love with that. And I think that physical movement helped her tremendously with her anxiety. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just thinking about it, even what the conversation we're having right now would have been, what's the word, verboten? Is that right in German? Would have been forbidden. And and I was thinking, I read this piece where, so around in the 1930s, 38, the Nazi leaders, or at least top officials like Himmler and Goebbels, wanted to throw all psychiatrists and psychotherapists in prison initially. And then somebody had a cousin, I think it was Goring, Hermann Goring had a cousin who was a psychiatrist who joined the Nazi party. So they kind of gave him you know, he was a psychiatrist with a Nazi slant or whatever it was. So they, they responded with some moderation to, to the, the, the doctors. Let, forget about what happened to the patients, which I really want to get into, because that's, that's something that those considerations certainly did not apply to the patients. Can we touch on what their response was to um, uh, people who were suffering with mental health in Germany? Sure. Yeah. So first of all, it was around 1888, long before this, that uh, Sir Francis Galton came up with the whole idea of eugenics, right? And it was looked at as a biological thing. And in some respects, it is. The idea was to get rid of diseases. I mean, it was pretty straightforward, and most doctors wanted that. And eugenics was big around the world. It wasn't just Germany. In fact, other countries, including um, the U.S., were were leading in their numbers of sterilizations. So, you know, these were big ideas. Um, And in fact, just a a lot of doctors did join the Nazi party. And a lot of doctors joined the Nazi party because they believed in eugenics, because they they wanted to figure out ways to get rid of disease. And, you know, if you think about it like that, well, we do want to do that, right? I mean, we're trying to get rid of COVID. We want to get rid of disease. But their way, of course, you know, the way they thought of it then was, you know, you had to stop the feeble-minded people and whatever they were called from reproducing. And in 1933, the Germans enacted their sterilization law, which was huge then. And um, I mean, people, what they called feeble-mindedness, which can be a whole range of things, Mm -hmm. right? Schizophrenic, manic depressives congenital blindness, postpartum, yeah, Um, alcoholism, you know, there were many, 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 many reasons people were sterilized. In between 1934 and 1939, 400,000 people in Germany were sterilized because of these laws. And basically, they had these things called health courts, and the, you know, a couple doctors sat on the health courts and just determined from a piece of paper who should be sterilized. I mean, it's crazy. You think it's crazy. There, I think there's, oh, and I, I don't want to say what state, because there's still one state in the U.S. that actually has the sterilization laws still on their books. I don't think they've gotten rid of it yet, which, again, it's like, whoa. What, I do want to know what state. I'm going to look that no, up. No, I heard a podcast on it, and I don't want to say the wrong state. Right. Because that would just... I don't know. I don't, I, anyway. I know I get you. And, and the part that also shocked me, I mean, 
it's pretty common knowledge that any group that was radically different from their ideology was was turned into um, an enemy on some level or other. And so whether it was the, you know, the Catholics, gypsies, homosexuals, um, or you were Jewish, of course, which was, you know, a primary, another primary focus, but I don't know that I've thought that much because it's not in my lineage around uh, mentally uh, uh, people struggling with mental issues. But so when I read that there's a that transcript from Dr. Brahm, who was, um, I guess, on trial after the war about the creation, he created the prototype for these gas chambers in the hospitals to euthanize, but they called it disinfecting. They called it disinfecting people and mercy killings using carbon monoxide. I mean, that, I just, I went, no, I haven't heard of that, that they actually call call this guy and get him to come and consult about how to build these gas chambers in the concentration camps. Uh, It it just stopped me in my tracks. And I went, I mean, we know it's awful. We know it was horrific. This is yet another layer of um, control and, and horrific kinds of actions that I don't have a file for. And I'm sure most people don't. Um, yeah, no, it's very interesting, and and I think it's it's you know a lot of people I've talked to about this are really surprised to hear that basically you know the gas chambers in the concentration camps were all designed in the mental hospitals. Yeah, I mean that's that was really the Nazis' opening act. You know, they figured out you know how to choose their victims. I mean, they were very methodical about it. They built their gas chambers, their crematoriums. They pillaged the bodies. I mean, everything that happened in the camps happened in the mental hospitals. And those doctors from those mental hospitals, you know, they were brought to the concentration camps to design those gas chambers there. So, I mean, it was it it was their first act, you know, yeah. before the the whole genocide. Yeah, shocking. And, you know, when it, um, it, it, again, the feeling of, as you say, the people they decided needed to be euthanized, it's, that criteria is so random sometimes. Right. Like there's the categories I've mentioned. Okay. But there were also 30,000 German, non-Jewish German people you know, in, uh, that were exterminated in Auschwitz, for example. Right, right. We need to be talking about that. We need to, I believe, broaden the framework of who we're, you know, what we're talking about and how horrific things can get. And it's not just a Jewish issue or some, right? right? Right. It's human. It's a human, these are human violations and they didn't come out of nowhere, right? There's something to understand about this. In fact, when they first started, and they did call them mercy killings, right, For because it, it, it was believed that these people were suffering and they would, you know, they could be put out of their suffering by being killed. And in fact, initially, um, the Jews weren't, they weren't going to give that gift, so to speak, to the Jews, the, the mentally ill Jews, because they were you know, they didn't need the kind of mercy that maybe the Germans needed. So, you know, you're absolutely right. It, it's about, yeah, it's, a, it's bigger than just about a race. It's, 
you know, it's how do we treat other human beings and how do we label? I mean, in another completely a little bit off tangent here, but, you know, in some cultures, and I love to study the paranormal, which is a completely different subject, I know, but, you know, people who hear voices or see visions, mm-hmm. you know, in this country, they might be labeled schizophrenic and be locked up. In other countries, they're treated like, you know, they have this gift of, yes. you know, the you know, the paranormal and that one day there'll be a, a shaman able right. to heal. So it's just, you know, it's so interesting how we label and classify and group and. And decide what's okay and what's a problem. Right. 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 Well, since you brought it into the conversation, let's let's dive in a little bit. I thought paranormal would do at the end, but it's here. So, <laughs> well, whatever. What? Yeah, exactly. What's the difference between having a vision? Um, and I use the word download. I use it as part of my regular vocabulary. Right. It's not a thought. It's a, it's a download. It feels like so. I wouldn't call it a vision. I'm not seeing anything, but I get in. It feels like I'm getting information. I don't have a, a, a mental condition, but I wonder if you, is there a difference between um, having a vision and just your take on it? Can we break it down, get a little more specific between, well, let's go with ha- the difference between having a vision and having a psychotic break, maybe. Let's right. do that. Well, and I- let's throw in download. Let's do all right. three. <laughs> <laughs> no, I believe in the downloading you know, aspect too. And I think that a lot of people actually get in, and this is, this is common knowledge. I mean, they get information in their dreams and, you know, there are some really interesting stories about, you know, physicists and mathematicians that literally got the information through a dream. And you have to consider what was that a download? You know, I mean, I think it maybe could have been. I mean, other people will think, oh, that's total nonsense. And, you know, again, I mean, I, you know, I know people who definitely have visions. They're not psychotic. They're definitely, you know, getting visions from the other side or hear voices, you know, and I, I don't know where the the line is so individual, right? I mean, it's so different for different people. And I mean, I guess what I would think is if, if you're in a lot of pain, mental anguish, then that's when you would hopefully obviously seek treatment. But people were and people are put in hospitals because, you know, of visions and, you know, voices that could very well be, you know, the paranormal or from the other side. And do you have a personal experience? And like I say, I I haven't read that, how it's woven into your book. I'm curious as to what, what called you to include that. So that that's interesting. So there is a character in the book. Um, I, I'm going to backtrack a little. So my grandmother is basically the main character in the book, and she was the one who tried to save her sister in Nazi Germany. She did a lot of research. They got the best doctors. But eventually Rigmore ended up at one of these institutions where they did build the gas chambers, and she was also sterilized. So my grandmother sort of, she fled Germany and because she was Jewish and also just put it all behind it, like locked it up, closed it. And not until, and this is sort of, well, that's a real story. But the other real part of the story is I also went to a mental hospital um, much later on with depression and anxiety. And it really, 
it really um, came on strong after my first daughter was born. I think that was a postpartum depression, but it was a postpartum depression on top of a whole life of depression. And so, you know, my grandmother was the one who sort of had to save me in, in, a, in essence by opening up, slowly opening up and being able to look at her past and reflect on, on her past. So how does this tie in with the paranormal? You're probably like, wait, what? No, no anyway, so it. there is a character who's, who's locked up in the mental hospital who has visions of the sister who died in Nazi Germany. And what this does to the grandmother, or to say my grandmother, is it pushes the boundaries, right? It makes her have to open up a little bit and question. And it's all about creating an openness. And in a way, that's the, the really major thread in the story is both characters, me and my grandmother, have to open up and really listen to the other one. And each person, I mean, this is how we started the conversation about being authentic. Each person has to be willing to be authentic in order to finally connect and finally feel that the love they have for each other. And, and that kind of takes the family out of the darkness and out of the secrets. And opening up a little bit to the paranormal was one of the, it, it, I didn't expect the grandmother to be like, oh yeah, now I get it. You know, that's definitely, but it, it just pushes a little, you know. And the grandmother in the book is, after she fled Germany, becomes quite rigid and controlling and closed, understandably, right? And I like to say that, you know, she, or I like to say in general, only a closed mind is certain, right? right. So it's about pushing the boundaries. It's about opening up. It's about being able to listen to each other. and then finally connect. Mm -hmm. And it, it totally weaves us into the focus I wanted to have as well today. When you look at all the reactivity and the divisiveness in our society, the unrest, the white nationalism, this incredibly growing intolerance for other people's perspective, because that when you're closed, that's it. You're right. You're certain. And we've right. got all these sides going, I'm certain, I'm certain. Right. And, and, what we're witnessing and what was just witnessed, you know, in the capital is um, in the States. I know you're in, in that outside Boston. Right. Um, it's, it's, it, it, I don't know how you cannot look at what's happening today and consider the correlation between our climate, our current climate and what was happening in Germany. I wonder if you can speak to that. Yeah, it's frightening. It's frightening because I, I think you're absolutely right there. We have all these different sides. You know, I know we often break it down to two sides and they just, nobody's listening to each other and everybody's sure they're right and everybody's blaming. And, you know, people seem to get more entrenched in their righteousness. Um, and that's what's so frightening. It's, it's like nobody's really listening. You know, I... I would love to know, like, why do you really think that, you know, Biden didn't win? Like, Biden didn't win. What are, what are you listening to? What is going on? Like, we don't have conversations. We just blame each other, you know, and sit in our righteousness. And I think that is frightening. And, and also, it's a lot of the propaganda, you know. Information. 
Right. The information is you, you don't trust it anymore. Uh, anywhere. I mean, Mark and I were talking about that, Tasha, before you came on. And that to me is terrifying. Like, why aren't we, we don't feel on any which side. We often feel like the information we're getting is incorrect. And, you know, you want to be able to trust your news stories and you don't know mm-hmm. what's slanted and what's not. I think that's really terrifying right now um a a little quote if i can read from well it's not that little it's it's timothy snyder who's a historian but he wrote an article on um what destroys democracy and he said fascism says nothing is true daily life isn't important facts aren't important all that matters is the myth one nation the mystical connection with the leader um your allegiance to the leader if you want to destroy democracy and rip out its heart, we stop access to facts. So exactly what you just said, we can't trust each other. Without trust, there's no law. Without law, there's no democracy. So go after the facts. And once the lying starts, both to self and others, um, you know, it's your opponent who's lying. It's journalists who are lying. Everybody around you is lying. Therefore, there's no truth. And that is the sort of the, the, the soil of which everything else responds from. So if we agree with that and we see it happening, what can we do to begin to reclaim a a sense of trust, I guess? Right. Right. I mean, and that, I mean, not to go back to the book, but a little bit to go back to the book. I mean, that's what it's all about is, is being able to trust trust and listen to the other person. And sometimes I do. I wonder, like, what if we were forced to sit in a room with somebody who isn't on our side, right? Just, like, understand that they're human and maybe begin to understand, you know, where they're coming from. I mean, it's all about empathy, right? And maybe if we realize, wow, we actually like each other. We actually respect their life. And, you know, maybe we can we can get somewhere, but right now it's, yeah, the divisiveness is so, yeah, it's so entrenched. It's crazy. Yeah. You know? Well, I, I am glad that you say that Sylvia, because, you know, in this, you know, mistrust of what's true, what's not where the facts lie, you know, the division, that's kind of like we were talking before we got on, you know, the division that's creating just socially, culturally, and in our family and friends, you know, and, and when we need it now more than ever, it's been nine months of this lockdown, right. people are starting to get really anxious because we don't, you know, where's the end? Where, where's it going to shift and change? And, you know, how do we then, you know, connect in a much better way, even if we have a difference of, you know, and at this point, I would say opinions, because if we can't trust the facts, all we have is kind of our opinions or feelings about the stories we're hearing. Right. You know? Right. And then, yeah. and then they're spread. And I was going to mm-hmm. say, I shudder to think how much even more horrific it would have been in Germany if they'd had the internet and all these social media platforms. Oh my God. Right. 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 We have this added component of instant information being sprouted everywhere. And, uh, you know, it's a whole different uh, weapon. It's being used in some ways as a weapon to spread misinformation. Great. No, I absolutely. 
it really is. I mean, I might sound a little corny, but I do think that, you know, spirituality could heal a lot of people. Like, you know, understanding, you know, that, that, you know, we're connected to the other side too. And, and, being a piece of that. I know that probably didn't connect very well right now, but oh, in my does. mind, I think it does. Yeah. That kind of love and that kind of accepting acceptance could, could bring a lot of healing. Well, and I think in terms of let's do finish with social media before you post something, imagine if you, cause people are, are posting so quickly, they have a reaction, they read something and boom, they're commenting. Right. What if you actually got centered and right. so my creed, my, the only thing I've got to hold on to, because I don't know if I'm right. Like I'm, if I hang my flag on being right, I'm in trouble. I already know I'm in trouble. So as a default, I go, okay, that's not it. I, that, that one doesn't work. We know that, right? You got to give that one up if you're going to, uh, you can't, what is the, what the course, do you, I don't know if you're familiar with the course in miracles. You can't have love and you can't be right and in love at the same time. Right. But regardless, so that's, you hang up being beautiful, you hang up being right. right. Then what? And to me, my, the, my creed, the thing I can hold on to like an anchor, like a pole, I guess I'm on a boat. I'm trying to go, what am I holding here? It's a uh, sail <laughs> is I ask myself, is this helpful to union and the sense of understanding that we are one, or is it going to um, create more divisiveness? And that's pretty simple. And if you just took a beat and asked yourself what the value, like you're, it's not about, we're in trouble because people think their opinions are important. And you really, that's not a loss of freedom to mull your opinion and have some discernment about what, what the point is, what your intention is in sharing that opinion. And that's all I'm talking about. Is it to create unity? Or is it to continue to feel the fire? And even that one step to me makes such a difference. Now, yes, I seem to be off social media quite a bit in terms of posting because often I'm I'm not quite there as as impulsive. It it doesn't lead to an impulse. It actually calls for reflection. Right. Absolutely. Right. Right. It's, yeah, to stop for a minute you know, and reflect and, and look at why you're doing it and, you know, and what your goals are. I mean, do you want to keep fighting? You know, it's funny. And a little off the topic too, I always ask my students at the beginning of the year, I'm like, what are the three most important words that you, you know, that you can say? And, you know, they, they go to the normal, I love you, whatever. And I, I tell them, no, be able to say out loud, I was wrong. And that is, and I try to explain how freeing that is because then you're like, oh, yeah. I don't have to be stuck in proving myself to be right when maybe I was wrong. Yeah. And anyway, I was just beautiful. Thinking, no, yeah. that's, I think it's relevant. Yeah. Really? I was wrong leads to accountability, which is fresh and clean like water. Yes. And I've said this before to me, guilt, which is when you're hiding and sh- right. ashamed that right. you were wrong, right. that is like sticky, icky, swampland, no benefit whatsoever. So for sure, I, I'm with you. I love that. One is freeing and actually can lead to real transparency and intimacy and authenticity. Right. The other, you got to hide it. Even if you're saying, sorry, it's just filled with Gunk, right, 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 
No, it's true. I mean, that those three words, and they're hard to say if you're yeah. not used to saying out loud, I was wrong. It's, it's hard. It's, it's so interesting. And, and even if it's not even the word necessarily wrong, but to take responsibility. Right. You know, if you can be in a situation, and it's something that I've learned over time, and exactly what you're saying is like we get this defensiveness knowing it was my fault. I messed up. But, you know, this happened because I made that decision or whatever that is. And I've noticed like when you own that right away and say, you know what, you're right. That was my responsibility. I dropped the ball or I made a mistake or I was wrong, whatever that is. It takes away that charge because the other person's not trying to prove themselves to you that you were wrong and that they're right. And then you're not defending yourself. And there's something I found to be very, as much as there's that, you know, I hate to use the word ego, but it's true, that ego part of yourself that doesn't want to be wrong. When you ask, there's something very freeing about that too, is what I've experienced. Yeah. So here we are in this really um, uncertain time. Do you have any ideas on how to maintain a level of um, comfort or understanding that we're learning something that's hopeful and positive when we're facing I mean, your family was in a very uncertain um, time, and here we are again in a different form. Do you have any suggestions or ideas that might help our listeners if they're struggling right now, just not knowing what, when it's going to end and what's going on in their lives? Yeah, well, one thing I've learned, which is very, it's difficult, and it's been a life journey, is learning to really embrace the uncertainty and the change. And It's interesting because one of my daughters seems to be able to do that, no problem. And the other one is really, this this is such a tense time. I mean, she's tense about, you know, the politics. She's tense about the pandemic. And um, I try to, you know, I talk to her often about that. I'm like, you know, you have to embrace the uncertainty. And, you know, you have to try to learn from, I mean, we have been, and we talked about that earlier. I mean, the things we're learning to do, for me, like in technology and Zooming and, you know, yeah, you, you have to embrace the things that we're, we're learning from this and, you know, developing a different kind of relationship. But, and it's hard. I mean, but the number one thing for me, you know, is to be open and to be authentic and to try to just have really honest conversations, you know, with the people you're close to. Mm-hmm. I think for me, it's um, trusting, like a knowing that it's going to be okay, no matter what is happening, that we're actually all capable and resourceful. Um, and if we're open, that w- we can move through something, even if it's tough, even if it's extremely difficult. Because I think safety for many people is when they know that's, that's how they find safety. So I'm going to do right. step one, step two, step three, or it's like having a plan or having a structure. People find safety in that. And when you take that away, you're left with that feeling of um, uncertainty, right. Which, right. It, it, which is a slippery slope because yes, that could be really, really uncomfortable. At the same time, if you can cultivate comfort with being uncertain with yeah, the unknown, right. whoa, right. are you ever free? Because then you're open to new information, right? Right. And it, uh, learning, it, you know, when you're learning, and I tell this to my students all the time, too, and part of learning is con- confusion. So 
embrace that confusion because if you're yeah. not confused, you already know it or you don't want to learn it. So, right. you know, if you want to learn and you want to be a lifelong learner, embrace the uncertainty, embrace the confusion. I mean, again, going back to the paranormal, that has helped me also enormously in uncertain times. Like the understanding that there's this whole spiritual world and that we're here to learn lessons and that earth school can be really tough, but we're learning and growing from it. And that brings me a lot of comfort. And I know a lot of people don't believe, you know, in the spiritual stuff. And I have lots of, I've been down a number of paths and, you know, sort of went at it from not a totally scientific way, but, you know, I quote unquote collected data and really have done my homework in that. And it, it, it actually has brought me enormous comfort, you know, just feeling like there's a reason we don't know what it is always, mm-hmm. but we will learn and grow from it. Isn't it cool when science backs up your intuitive knowing i always get a real kick out of that going yes great we just some quantum physics piece and it's something that you've known for a long time right Right. it's it's good it's a good feeling and i really like that term earth school Mm -hmm. (laughs) so what was at the root of the extremism and the dogma both in germany back in the 30s and that you see happening right now like it's really obvious in the states but i don't think other countries are exempt from this at all i mean we just shut down a chapter of proud boys in manitoba here in canada and i was shocked i had no idea we had uh, a white nationalist group running rampant in manitoba but we did so i think it's bringing a level of awareness but my question to you is is there something um a, a parallel between what fed that kind of extremism back in Nazi Germany, and what is feeding it now? I mean, I I, I don't know for sure, but I, my gut tells me it's fear. You yeah. know, people's fear of not being heard, not being valued, you know, and, and also wanting to blame. I mean, they did in Germany want to blame the Jewish people and that it was easy to do that. So, you know, there's a lot of fear, anger, And so, you know, they have people turn it on other people instead of, you know, honestly looking at themselves, reflecting on what might be going on psychologically with them or emotionally with them. And instead it gets, you know, just turned outward in the worst ways, you know, and people like to feel better than other people because they don't feel good about themselves. I mean, um, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite, you know, he wrote the screw tape letters and, you know, to compare, he said, was really the axiom to hell. So when you start comparing, right, there, you know, you lose yourself. You lose your authentic self. Mm-hmm. They're better, they're worse, mm-hmm. you know, whatever you, you know, people do it to make themselves feel better. So, I mean, underneath, you know, when that kind of hatred, there has to be fear and lack of self-esteem and um, their own shame. And, they, you know, you put down other people and that makes some people feel better. And, and then apathy is also being silent is also a problem. So absolutely, maybe we can touch on practically let's, let's do just do racism in general. How do you respond to a racist comment? How do you challenge a racist without it turning into a fist fight? Right. I mean, you know, you have to speak from your own truth, like 
that made me uncomfortable. You know, it's got to be about how, how did it make me feel? You know, instead of, again, avoid the pointing fingers, you know, you're a racist, you shouldn't have said that. Right. You know, how did it make you feel? It made me uncomfortable and, and maybe talk a little bit about why, you know. I. Yeah, and, and we've been, um, my friend and I have been dissecting a little bit this whole feeling versus uh, thought and going, which comes first? We've been having all sorts of debates, but the point is feeling it feels to me, obviously I'm a feeling person. I mean, I love thought too, but my, I value my gut. I value how I experience something. And there are times I can't even engage in a conversation because the feeling is so, if I gave it words, it would be simply no, like it's a crystal clear. No, like it's a boundary. It's a no. Um, But the conversation around the recognition that you can feel and empathize, as you said earlier, with someone who's radically different. And it's harder to do when it's crossing your value system like a racist. It's really tough. But imagine the fear that person must be running to have created, to have made meaning and created such thoughts that they believe genuinely that they're somehow being threatened by this person who's different than them. Right. So the feeling sounds to me like the beginning of a pathway um, to be able to speak, but not react if you're also aware of the thoughts that are happening at the same time. Right. Right. Yeah. No, that's that's beautifully said. Kind of complicated. I know. No, radio, but no, it's great. I mean, I've I mean, I've thoroughly enjoyed this hour listening to you. I've learned so much and. You know, oh, I'd love talking to you too. And I, I really, I know we only have about five more minutes. So I want to get back to your book if we could. Sure. Um, and, and you're going to tell us where they can, where listeners can get it and how they can read it. And um, what, but my question I think is, how do you think the book actually can support people in this uncertain time? If I would just to give you a big wide general place to go. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, First of all, it's about being open to the difficulties, you know, especially to any kind of mental struggles. I mean, not hiding those within yourself, within your family. So, again, I mean, that's so important for public discourse, right? Like, I'm struggling with this. This is making me really nervous, you know. I'm feeling angry about this or whatever it is. And so it's about being open with with those things and also really just again listening and and trying to understand each other and have that empathy because that's what pulls the characters together in the end you know it's a book that starts out pretty dark you know it's nazi germany and eugenics and not such pleasant things and you know through as you as you read through the book the grandmother and the granddaughter you know by finally sort of letting go of their each has their own different prejudices for different reasons and by exposing those and opening up to those you know they can finally join in in love in the end and so yeah it's about being open-minded and having empathy and if someone's listening who is struggling with uh mental health issues or um do you have a message for them that you'd like to share? 
There's so much help to be had. You know, I, I when my, my both my daughters inherited, you know, depression, one has more of the depressive side, the other has more of the anxiety side. And when my eldest daughter was depressed, I mean, I went, you know, I went fully in and, you know, she had a psychiatrist and a psychologist and a psychic. And, you know, she hated one of the psychiatrists, so I got her another one. You know, it's, there just is so much help. Part of depression is feeling hopeless. Like that's mm-hmm. a symptom of the depression. So you're going to mm-hmm. feel hopeless. You're going to feel like there's not help. But, you know, keep telling your brain, even if you don't feel it, you just have to keep telling your brain, there is a lot of help. There's, there's a lot of good medicine. There are a lot of great therapists. And if, you know, if a psychic helps you, go for that as well. You know, one doesn't have to exclude the other, you know, and that there really is help out there. Yeah. And so where can our listeners get your book, Where Madness Lies? So um, I have a website, sylviatrue.com, and you can get it at Barnes and Noble and Amazon and just Google it and a bunch of different places come up. So oh, I'm so glad you wrote it. First. What? I'm so glad you wrote it. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think not only is it an incredible read and a captivating story, it's, you know, this whole interview, as we've talked about, it feels like it's illuminating some really important, uh, an important message that's helpful to people. And it's not hitting you on the head with it. It's in a story form where you just get caught up, which I love. And that's, that's how we absorb things best anyway. It it is how it's so true. You know, we don't we're not very receptive to you must do this. Yeah. <laughs> we're much more receptive to, Oh, listen to this story and, yeah. you know, and then figure out what you learn from it. Well, I, I've always heard where, you know, we learn best when we don't know we're learning. Right. Oh, right? I love that. And, and become, I love that. Become a great storyteller because that's where people will learn the most. You're telling a story yet there's messages in it. And and I think that it's a powerful way, you know, in the Western world, we get so caught up in the science and the academics and why and the how versus just letting ourselves get taken away in a story that, you know, we go, ah, I learned something or that I felt good or or something of that nature versus just getting all academic about it. Right. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Well, it has been a, a super pleasure speaking with you today. I regret my choice of music, Mark. Can we change it or is it too late? Tasha, you can do whatever you want. It becomes too late about noon on Wednesdays. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell, I'll tell those who are watching uh, on Facebook. So I picked the music for the show that airs on the radio. And because we, I was diving into Nazi Germany, what did I come up with as an ending was talking head psycho killer, yeah. which, <laughs> which is bah, 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 bah. Yeah. like it's, it's relevant, but it's not where we're at. And it's not where we've ended up. And rather than end on that note, I would rather play just so you know, Mark, all you need is love or oh, that's something super positive or imagine. So well, either of those two you pick, but let's end on a positive note and really you know, I think the resonance of everything we've been talking about, and as you say, hope, right? Hope. Let's right. let's be those messengers. Let's generate that, and in all our choices. Um, right. So, thank you so much, Sylvia, for for being our guest today. Oh, yeah, thank such you. A pleasure. Thank great you. conversation for sure. Oh, yeah, I, I was much. just taken away. I, I even learned a bunch today, so I'm I'm always grateful for that. So, thank you. 
and you didn't even know you were learning. Exactly. <laughs> That's the best part. Go figure. Right. <laughs> I'd like okay. to be an example of what I learn, you know. <laughs> Thanks, well, everyone, for thank joining you. us. All Conscious right. Living Bye. Radio is on Wednesdays, 6 to 7 p.m., uh, 100.5 FM on Co-op Radio. Listening to Conscious Living Radio. For free show downloads, additional information about our guests and topics, or details about upcoming programs, check us out at consciouslivingradio.org.